All right, good evening, everybody. If you want to go ahead and find your place, we'll go ahead and get you, get you started on time and hopefully get you out of here at a time when you can have some time to, to fellowship. If you got your Bibles and you want to follow along with our study tonight, uh, Romans chapter 14, and we will be in verses 10 through 23, I, as always, I would highly suggest even though I'll show you all these scriptures, that I would always highly suggest you bring your Bibles or your iPads or whatever you read and, uh, and follow along. Uh, the title of our lesson tonight is Faith and Sin. Now tonight, we are going to make an attempt to answer a question. And it, it may seem fairly simple, but I think you'll find out that it's not. And, this, and the question that we are going to try to answer is this one. What is sin? What is sin? Now, if I ask that question from somebody in the... Let's say I could go back to the Old Testament and I could ask somebody from the Old Testament, uh, what is sin? Uh, they probably would laugh at me because to them, it was just obvious. Sin is breaking God's law. The Jewish rabbis tell us that there are 613 laws in the Old Testament that the Jews had to keep. Now, whether that number is accurate or not, I, I really don't know. But the point is, if you lived in the Old Testament, you had a list. Are you with me? And you could tape that list to your refrigerator. You could read that list in the synagogue. Or if you're really spiritual, like some of them was, you could write them in little tiny writing on a scroll, roll it up and wear it on your forehead which some of those guys actually did that, believe it or, or not. But to them, that was, it was, they had a list of do's and don'ts. And if you broke that list, at least one of the, or more of those, that was sin. You were breaking God's law. Now, the thing is, we are under a New Testament or a new covenant. We are no longer under the law, Paul says. We are under grace, which means we're not ruled by the law. We're not governed by the law. So what is sin for, for us? Well, I, I venture to guess if I went out into local churches, probably including this one, and I just went around and asked people, what is sin? More than likely, I would get the exact same answer that someone in the Old Testament would have given me. They would say, well, sin is breaking God's law. And if I said to them, well, give me an example, they'd say, well, you know, don't, don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit. Everybody with me? You would get, they would give you a list. So most people's definition of sin is exactly that. They've got a list in their head of things. They, it's a bunch of do's and don'ts. And if you break that list or go against that list, then that is sin. But is that all it is? Is that what sin, is the same definition true in the New Testament that it is in the Old? We're going to try to answer that tonight. Now, let me say a couple things before we begin. This is important. You may say, well, why is this so important to be able to define sin? Well, it's important because, as we all know, sin separates us from God. So, as human beings, it should be the utmost importance to every single one of us to know what sin is so that we can recognize it in our own life, recognize when we commit it, and find a way of forgiveness and reconciliation with God. So, it is of the, of the utmost importance that we know what sin is. So, we're going to try to do that tonight. We're going to try to clearly define sin. But now, 
even as I say that, I need to tell you something. It's not going to be easy. And the reason it's not going to be easy to define sin is because sin does not want to be defined. Let me say that again. The reason it's not easy to get a clear definition of sin is because sin doesn't want you to have a clear definition of it. The Bible talks about sin in, in various scriptures as being deceptive. Let me read one to you. This is Hebrews chapter 3, 12 through 13. It says, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. In other words, as long as you're here and as long as you've got breath in you, you keep exhorting one another that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You see, sin is deceitful. It's deceptive. It doesn't just walk into your life and announce, hey, I'm here to separate you from the living God. It doesn't do that, does it? You see, all sin comes with a lie. You see, sin lies to us, and it says that thought that you're thinking, that, that desire that you're feeling, or that act that you're committing, it's not really that bad. It's, it's not that bad because there's way worse things than what you're doing. It's not that bad because everybody's doing it. It's not that bad because, come on, you're a, everybody knows you're a good person. It's not that bad because you're just weak and you can't help it and, and God understands. It's not that bad. Don't worry about it. God's not going to judge you for that. God's not going to hold you accountable for that. That's the lie that sin tells us. And by the way, we are so happy to hear that. Our sin nature will cooperate. We, we want to believe those lies. And so sin is deceptive and our sin nature wants to believe that. And so it's very difficult for sin, for it to be, us to get a very clear definition of it. In fact, sometimes, let me say this, when I look at the state of the world right now and the things that are going on, I sometimes despair. I look at people and I think, how can they not see what's happening? It's as clear as a bell. Why can't they see it? I was thinking the other day, you know, if I, if I went out and told somebody, hey, I believe the earth is flat, they'd look at me like I was crazy. They'd say, well, that's not, that's not scientific. But yet people will stand up and say, I believe a man can become a woman. I believe there's more, more than two genders. I believe a, man can a person can change their gender from day to day. Folks, that is just as unscientific as the earth being flat. And people all over the place are believing that lie. Why? Because they want to believe it. They want to believe it. See, they, sin is lying to them, and they're cooperating. They're believing it because it sounds good. It tickles their ears. When I see that, I despair sometimes to think, man, is there, any, is there even any hope to drive away the fog of deception in their life? Sometimes I see it amongst even people in the church, my family and friends, where they're, they're judging other people, and I can look at their life and say, dude, you, you got the same thing going on. And then, of course, I look at myself, and I got the same issues as everybody else. Sin is just as deceptive in my life as it is in anybody else's. And sometimes I despair of it. And I think, man, is there any hope that people will come to their senses and see sin for what it is? But then I remember something. I remember that there's this thing called the Word of God. 
And Paul tells us, the, um, the writer of Hebrews tells us this in Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You see, nothing exposes sin. Nothing defines sin like the Word of God. If we'll just listen to what it says. That's what we're going to do tonight. I, I'm not going to give you any opinions. I'm not going to try to you know, paint you any rosy pictures. I'm just going to tell you what the New Testament says about how it defines sin. Now, let's very quickly, get, we, over the past two weeks, we've covered verses, or, or we were out last week, but the two weeks before that, we covered verses 1 through 9. And let me just go over that very quickly so you can see how we got to verse 10. Now, in verses 1 through 9, Paul is dealing with potential issues among believers. You remember Romans 14, 2, he said this, they were having an issue in the church where one person believes he may eat anything, and another person eats only vegetables. And you'll remember, I told you this probably had to do with meat that was, in those days, was offered in the pagan temples. And after it was offered in the pagan temples, they would take it and sell it in the market. And some Christians would go to the market, and they'd see that three ninety nine ribeye, and they'd say, man, what a deal. And they'd take it home and eat it. And other Christians would go to the market, and they'd say, oh, no, I, I can't do that. So Paul says you're going to have those differences of opinion in the church. So let's bring it down to River of Life. Here we are at River of Life, and I've been here a long time, and I know a lot of different people, and we come from all kind of different backgrounds here. We are, so there's, there's rich people in, in this church, and there's poor people in this church. There's, there's old people, and there's young people. There's there's black people and there's white people and, and, and Asian people and other people. There's people that come from Baptist backgrounds and atheist backgrounds and Catholic backgrounds, different ethnicities and nationalities. And we have all bring our upbringings, right? People, how you were raised and what you were taught and what you learned and what you believed. And we all come to this melting pot that we call the river of life. And it's, it's going to happen that we're not a bunch of robots. We're not all cut from the same cookie-cutter sheet. We, we are going to have differences of opinions about especially what, what Paul would refer to as non-essential things or opinions. We believe the big things. We all are on the same page for that. But on other things, we can have different opinions. So what does Paul tell us? He says, you're going to have different opinions, and that's okay. In fact, he says this, not only is it okay to have different opinions, the opinions you have should be strong ones. Remember Romans 14, 5, where he said this, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. We said it a couple weeks ago. When Paul looks at, looks at one, uh, uh, these two Christians and one of them's over here and saying, oh, all that stuff don't matter. Those are just little things that don't matter. And there's a guy over here who says, yeah, they do matter. Paul says, I want that guy. Give me that guy. Give me that guy where everything matters. He wants to serve the Lord and glorify the Lord and honor the Lord, even in the little things. Give me that guy. 
So Paul says it's okay to have opinions and you should have strong opinions. At the same time, Paul says, you've got to understand, and this is a radical thing, but somebody else can come to the, uh, uh, the exact opposite conclusion you do and they can still be honoring the Lord. Seems impossible to us, but Paul is what Scripture says. Others can feel differently. So don't despise one another. Don't judge one another. Instead, accept one another, welcome one another, and remember that these are matters of opinion. They are non-essential things. And he kind of wraps this up in verses 10 through 12. Let me read this to you. He says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, if Paul had just stopped right here and we didn't have any more of the, uh, of the chapter, we'd all be thinking, well, you know, I, I kind of get what he's saying there, right? We're all going to have different opinions and it's okay to have your opinions. In fact, you should have strong opinions. But let, let, just let, um, let live and let live is kind of what Paul's saying here, right? You let that person do what they want to do. And if they want to eat meat, let them eat meat. And if you don't want to eat meat, you don't do it. And everybody just get along and don't really cross one another. If he had stopped there, but he didn't. Let's look at verse 13. Paul says this, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather... Decide. Make a decision never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. See, Paul says it's not enough just to accept somebody that has a different opinion than you. He says you need to make a decision that you're not going to do anything that would hinder them or block them or make it harder for them to follow Jesus Christ. So he just raised the bar. <laughs> he raised way up. He's going to raise it again here in, in just a little bit. Look at verse 14. Paul says this. Now remember, he's, he's, he started out this chapter saying one person eats meat and another person doesn't eat meat. Now watch what he says in verse 14. He says, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. Now, where is he getting this from? Well, let's go back to Mark chapter 5. These are the words... Of Jesus Christ. He said this. There is nothing outside a person. That by going into him. Can defile him. But the things that come out of a person. Are what defile him. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person. From the outside cannot defile him. Since it enters not his heart. But his stomach. And is expelled. And then Mark adds a comment here. Thus. He declared all foods clean. And Jesus goes on to say, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come within and they defile a person. So Paul it knows this. He says there's nothing you can put in your mouth that goes into your stomach that can defile you. It's what comes out of your heart that makes you unclean, okay? But notice very carefully what Paul says next. I'm going to read the whole verse, Romans 14, 14. Paul says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself, 
but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. So I got a I got some banana pudding. Banana pudding Sunday. Man, that banana pudding was good. So I got some banana pudding, and I we all know. Can we all agree? There's nothing wrong with banana pudding, right? There's nothing wrong with it. It's not unclean. But for some crazy reason, if I thought that eating banana pudding was a sin, guess what? It is. It's got nothing to do with the banana pudding. It's got nothing to do with the meat. It's got to do with your attitude. It's got to do with your conscience. It's got to do with your faith. The clean becomes unclean if I think it's unclean. The, the non-sinful act or behavior becomes sinful if I think it's wrong and I do it anyway. Now, listen, please, please, please don't miss what Paul's saying here. Faith is what matters in Christian behavior. Faith is what matters in Christian behavior, not just whether you partake or abstain. It's what you think about it. It's your motivation for doing that thing. What makes something sinful is that you're doing it and you're not doing it out of faith. That's what makes it sinful. Now, what do I mean by that when I say somebody's not doing it out of faith? And I'm going to give you an example in just a moment. But what I mean is you're not acting out of an overflow of contentment and trust and satisfaction in God. Okay? Let me give you an example. Let's take drinking wine. And you don't have to answer me, but I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to answer it honestly to yourself. Do you think that drinking wine is wrong? Okay? You either do or you don't. Now, by the way, your motivation, why you think it's wrong, really doesn't matter. I, what, it could be because, you know, you grew up Southern Baptist and they told you you were going to hell if, if you ever drank any wine. It might be that, right? Or it could be, you know, who knows what it could be. But the point is, you think it's wrong, right? Now, here's my question. Or here's my statement. Based on Scripture, if you ask me to go to Scripture and find a Scripture that says drinking wine is wrong, I cannot do it. I can't do it. I can't find scripture anywhere that says you cannot do it in moderation. However, if you think it's wrong, guess what? It's wrong. Now, why is it wrong? Is it because the wine is unclean? Jesus said what? No. There is nothing that goes into a man, that goes into his stomach, that can defile him. Is it because it can defile you? No, Jesus said it cannot. It's wrong because of your conscience and because of your motives, okay? Now, I want to dig into this a little bit, all right? Let's say that there's someone here that thinks drinking wine is wrong, and yet they still do it. So here's my question for that person. Why are you doing it? What's your motivation? If you think it's wrong and you do it anyway, what's your motivation? Is it, is it to fit in in a social setting? Is that your motivation, to fit in with, with, so somebody will approve of you 
and won't laugh at you and make fun of you? Is that why you're doing it? Are you doing it because you get a buzz off of it? Is, is that why you're doing it? Are you doing it to relieve stress? By the way, I've heard that. People say, well, I'll go home. The first thing I do, you know, I've had a hard day. I take a, I take a glass of wine. When I first taught this lesson back in uh, over 10 years ago, I was uh, online. I was looking around. And I found an article. Uh, it was called Ladies Who Needs a Drink. And it was uh, by a lady named Ashley Moore. You can still find it out on the Internet today. And uh, it was, uh, I think, in 2013. And I want to read you just a portion of this article. This is what she said. She said, even as a church-going, Bible-reading employee at a Christian publication, she works at ChristianityToday.com, I know of maybe one female friend who doesn't drink. Drinking is so common among women and Christian women that we aren't even afraid to admit it. Somewhere in this evolution, a culture of drinking regularly to cope with life and joking about it has sprung up, especially among women. Now, when I read that article, four words jumped off the page at me. Four words showed me her motivation. Does anybody see it? To cope with life. To cope with life. Now, I'm going to ask you, is she drinking wine from faith? Yes or no? Absolutely not. She, she's drinking wine to get a temporary re, uh, relief from stress. She, she's, she's drinking wine to get a, get a, a temporary joy. She, she's get, drinking wine to, for whatever reason, but it has nothing at all to do with God. It's to cope with life. You see, folks, our motives will betray us. It's not the action, it's the why are you doing it. And her motives betray her. They show a loss of trust and satisfaction and contentment in her Savior, Jesus Christ. See, her actions show that she's treasuring something that, that she might even think is wrong more than she treasures God. And folks, that's the very definition of sin. When you put something ahead of Him, that's sin. See, on the other hand, if he really is your treasure, if he really is first and priority in your life, then there's not going to be an overpowering desire to do something that you feel is wrong. See, I may, I'm, I may think that's wrong, but, but Jesus is my treasure. And I may say to you, I don't do that because I don't believe it's right. And I don't feel pressure to do it because God is mine. I don't feel pressure to be accepted by others because I'm accepted by Him. I, I, I don't feel pressure to get stress out of wine because He is my peace. I, I don't feel pressure to get a temporary buzz because He is my joy. Are, are you with me? See, her motives betray her. See, this is incredibly illuminating for Christian behavior and our do's and our don'ts. It shows us that what matters in Christian faith, what matters in our Christian walk, is not just doing certain things or not doing certain things. What matters is our heart. That's what matters. What matters is that we are acting from an overflow of trust and faith and contentment and satisfaction in God. Now, 
if Paul had just stopped here. You see what he said? The first thing he said is, hey, you guys are going to have differences of opinions. It's okay. It's okay. Just accept one another. And he says, oh, yeah, by the way, don't ever do anything to hinder the weaker brother. If they think something is wrong, you shouldn't get caught dead doing that thing. You, you don't, don't hinder them. Don't make it harder for them to follow Christ. Don't, don't stand up and say, well, I got a right to do this. Paul says, no, that's your brother, man. That's your weaker brother or sister. Help them get to the Lord. Now, he had just stopped there, but he didn't. Let's read verses 15 to 21. He says this, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, then you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever serves Christ in that way is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, Paul says, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And he says it again, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, twice in this passage, Paul uses the word destroy. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. What he's talking about is the work of God, the, the work that God is doing inside a brother and sister in Christ. And he says, don't stand up and say, well, I got the right to do this. And when that person sees you, let, let me give you an example, okay? You got some, some guy over here who used to be an alcoholic. And, he's, and, he's, and he's, he's sober now, and he's in church, and, and everything's going well. And then one day, he walks into El Jalisco's, and there's Derek. And he's got one of them big old honking margaritas in front of him. And he looks over there, and he says, well, that's, he preaches. He, he teaches. He's an elder. If he can do it, well, maybe I can too. And I just destroyed him. Paul says, don't you ever, ever, ever do that. You don't eat meat. You don't drink. You don't do nothing that has the potential to destroy the faith of a young, weak, immature believer. You put your freedoms in your back pocket and you do without. That's exactly what he's saying. The, by the way, that word destroy... That's what he's saying. You're going to destroy their faith. You, you could literally send them to hell. Now, how do I know that? Look at 1 Timothy 1.19. Paul says this. He's talking about people that are saved. They, he says they hold, they're holding to faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, faith and a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Somebody called me this week and asked for my advice on something. And they say, hey, I feel like I need to do this. I'm... I, I, I can't sleep at night. I said, I said, brother, you need to follow your conscience. If your conscience is telling you to do it, you better do it. Because notice what happens. If you start, stop listening to your conscience, 
Stop, stop listening to it. Stop listening to it. One day you'll never hear it again. Don't ever go against your conscience. Obey your conscience. That's what Paul told us back in Romans 14, 1 through 9. And what we can't do as mature and stronger believers is we can't do anything that would make somebody go against that conscience. You see, this is what Paul is saying right here. If you and I act against our conscience, it's telling us something is wrong and we do it anyway. By the way, now we know that means that we're not acting from faith. If you and I act against our conscience, then what we're doing is we're nurturing a hardness of heart. And if we don't check that with repentance, it can lead to the destruction of our faith. Everybody know that? You, you don't, that's why Paul says, man, exhort one another daily. Exhort one another daily. Don't be deceived by sin because it hardens your heart. And it can harden it to a point where you look up one day and you are miles away from where you started. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, in the same way, if by our actions we somehow encourage someone else to go against their conscience, then we are literally participating in hardening their heart. We're doing that. Paul said, don't ever do that. Put your freedom in your back pocket and do things for mutual peace and mutual upbuilding. You see, folks, that's not love. When we hinder and block and make it harder for someone to follow Christ, that's not love. And by the way, what are the two things over the entire law? Love God, love your neighbor. The whole law falls under those two things. Love God, love your neighbor. So if you're doing anything that's not out of love, you are breaking God's law, which is the very definition, Old Testament and New, of what sin is. Now, let me read one. Let me just verify that. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 8, 9 through 13, where Paul dealt with a very, simple, a very similar situation in the church of Corinth. He said this, Take care that this right of yours the right to eat meat or the right to drink wine or whatever it is, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, the weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you have sinned against Christ. So everybody see that, what he just said? I might, have, I might have this banana pudding, and I'm just using it. I know it's a really dumb analogy, but we know nothing's wrong with it. And I know nothing's wrong with it. But if somebody walked in my house and they thought eating banana pudding was wrong, I need to put it away. Because if I eat it in front of them, what he's saying is I'm sinning against him and I'm sinning against Christ. I've sinned by, by contributing to them being encouraged to go against their conscience. Now, you want to take the bar a little bit higher? 1 Corinthians 10, 24 to 33. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Now, I just put a big uh-oh there. And the reason I did that, because Paul just went outside the church, and he went to, now he's talking about anybody. Not just your brothers and sisters. He's even talking about unbelievers. Listen to what he said. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, 
without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, what did Paul just say? Is there anything wrong with meat? No. Remember what we said? Look, the meat's hanging in the meat market. The demon's not in the meat. You don't eat the meat and the demon goes. Meat is meat. It doesn't change it because it was offered on an idol. There's nothing wrong with it. That's what Paul's saying. The earth is the Lord, the fullness thereof. There's nothing wrong with it. Now watch this. If an unbeliever invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is put in front of you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Okay, let's stop right there. So an unbeliever back in that day, so let's say it's a, some guy, he's a, he's a follower of uh, Athena, right? So he goes to Athena's temple. And there's been a, a sacrifice that day, and they've sacrificed some big, uh, some cow, and, and he brought, you know, he got some, some prime rib off of that. He invites you over to dinner, and he puts it in front of you, and Paul says, man, whatever they put in front of you, eat it, don't ask any questions. But if the unbeliever says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice to Athena, or Zeus, or Apollos, or some demon god... Paul says, don't eat it. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> Paul, you just said there's nothing wrong with me. Didn't he? Now you're telling me just because he says that it was offered to a demon, don't eat it. What, what's going on here? Watch what he says. Don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Paul says, I don't mean your conscience. I mean he is. You see, that unbeliever who's, who's in the temple and he's offering this meat to this, uh, to this demon God and he invites you, a Christian, over to his house and he takes that meat and he puts it in front of you and he says, man, this was just offered to Zeus and he's watching you to see what you'll do. Paul says, you push that aside and say, I can't do that. Not because of your conscience, because you know there's nothing wrong with it, because of him. Because if you eat it, he'll think, well, maybe there's nothing wrong with sacrificing to these demon gods. It's his conscience that's, see, it's his conscience that's weak. It's his conscience that's barely afloat. It's, it's barely aflame. And he says, nurture that guy's conscience. Don't do anything to, to, to harden that any further. Paul goes on, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. You see, our overriding purpose in life, both in the church and outside the walls of the church, should be to bring others to Christ, even if it's at the expense of our own freedoms. See, I, I, this needs to be our story at River of Life. Yeah, we're different backgrounds. Yes, we're different nationalities and races and ethnicities and all of those things. Yeah, we come from all kind of different religious upbringings and all of that thing. But we ought to be in here and saying, man, I love you. And I'm going to do whatever it is to make it easier for you to follow Christ, not make it harder. We should love others more than we love our own freedom. 
Love others more than we love our own freedom. Now, I'm going to close with verses 22 and 23 where Paul wraps it up. 22, he says this, The faith that you have, keep it between yourself and God. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean, hey, don't go out in, at Winn-Dixie and witness to somebody in the, in the dairy aisle? No, that's not, that's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, don't flaunt the faith that makes you free. If you're free to do something, enjoy that freedom. But don't do it at the expense of somebody else. Everybody with me? That's what he's saying. Go home. Enjoy that freedom at home. Do it at home. But don't do it in a way that could somehow become a stumbling block to a weaker or more immature sister or brother. Don't do that. And folks, I think, see, I think I've said this for a long time. When people are the loudest about their own opinions, I think those people are the least convinced of their own opinions. The louder somebody is, the more they try to convince you of their opinion, it's really because they're insecure. They think if they can just get you and get them and everybody else on their side, they'll feel better about themselves. They'll feel better about what they're, what they're saying. They'll feel more confident in their own beliefs. In fact, I would say this. I would argue that people are the most pushy about their own opinions are actually the people who are the least convinced of their own opinions. If you're confident, if you're accepted by God and loved by God and known by God, man, I should just, that, that should just give me all the contentment in the world. I don't need anything else. I don't need anything else. Paul says at the end of verse 22, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Listen, this is the joy of never having to do what you think is wrong. I told somebody this the other day on the phone. You have no idea what it's like to lay down at night with a completely clear conscience. You know how many people in this world can't do that? If you have a clear conscience, it is worth its weight in gold. It is worth its weight in gold. In fact, this is one of the purposes of all the stuff that Paul writes in the New Testament. Watch what he says in 1 Timothy 1.15. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart a clear conscience, and genuine faith. And genuine faith. I don't want to have anything on my conscience that I'm doing to sin against God, and I certainly don't want to have anything on my conscience that I'm doing to sin against my brothers and my sisters. Verse 23, and Paul wraps it up. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, because whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, I don't know what, do you see what he just said? Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I said it before, we were trying to answer this question, what is sin? And nothing exposes sin like the Word of God, and it doesn't get much clearer than what Paul just said. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The root of sin is the failure to trust God, the failure to believe God. By the way, that statement from Paul makes anything, anything from preaching to house painting, a candidate for sin. Let me say that again. What Paul just said makes anything a candidate for sin. I said, if we went back to the Old Testament and we talked to somebody and asked them what sin is, they would say, it's a list. 
And my guess is if I went into most churches today and I said, what is sin? They would say it's a list. But it's not a list, folks. It's not just transgressing a list of do's and don'ts. You just can't, you can't do it that way. And by the way, that's what Satan would like you to believe. Satan would love you to believe that here's a list of do's and here's a list of don'ts. And if you can do really good at keeping those things, then you're, you're all right with, with God. But that is so dangerous because people today are going through life and they think they're okay because they don't do these things. And they think they're okay because they do do these things. And they're not okay at all because they're not doing any of it from faith. In fact, some people can be sinning all day long because everything they do, every thought, every action, every desire is all about them. And it's not coming from faith in the promises of God. I want to give you an example. I thought, what can I pick that nobody would see as sin? What, what could I pick that nobody would ever put on a list of sins? And I thought, well, how about tithing? So let me introduce you to, to John. John's a, a businessman. He's actually a banker. He's very wealthy. He's a family man. He's been married 25 years. He's got kids. Every uh, month, he faithfully gives 10%. He could actually do much more, but he faithfully gives 10%. But John is not a Christian, okay? John's made up, by the way, so I'm, I'm telling you he's not a Christian because I know him because I made him up, right? So he's not a Christian, right? So why does John tithe? What's his motivation? He wants to be approved by others. He, he knows people see those, might, might see those numbers, and he wants to be approved by others. He sees it more as a business transaction. He believes in God. He just doesn't... He didn't believe in Jesus. He hadn't accepted Jesus as his Savior. He hadn't made Jesus Lord of his life. But he's got enough fear of God. He's afraid of what God might do if he doesn't. Now, let me ask you, does any of those reasons proceed from faith? Not a one. Not a one. See, every time John writes that tithe check, he's sinning. Because he's not doing it out of faith. He's not doing it to honor God. He's got his own reasons. He's got his own motivations. In fact, let me tell you this. Do you understand that for an unbeliever, everything they do is sin? It has to be because nothing is done out of faith. Even the good things they do. One day they'll stand before God and say, Man, I, I did these things. I cast out demons in your name and I preached in your name and I taught Bible studies in your name and I, I volunteered at the, uh, at the soup kitchen in your name and I, I did clothing shelter runs in your name and I did all this. And he'll say, depart from me. I, I, I never knew you. We never had a relationship with one another. Everything, everything you did was for yourself. Everything you did for, was for reasons, pay people to pat you on the back or whatever the case may be. It was a transaction, but it wasn't from faith. Now, let me give you another example. Let me introduce you to Bill. So Bill's a landscaper. Uh, he's twice divorced. He's got three kids. He's got alimony payments. He's got child support payments. And he was saved late in life after two divorces. He got saved, miraculously saved when he was in his 40s. Um, he cannot give 10%. He just can't do it. The only way he can give 10% is not to pay his child support. 
That's the only way he could do it. He would have to take food out of his kid's mouth. But he gives everything that he can. Now, why does he do it? Because he loves God. He really does. He, he wants to give back to God. He, he, he sees the word where it says, be a giver. And he obeying the word. He believes God will bless his giving. Now, you ask me, I ask you, do those proceed from faith? Absolutely, they do. See, you just, it's not about a list. It's about your heart. It's about your conscience. It's about your motivation. What's behind the thing that you're doing? That's what Paul wants us to see. Now, I want you to understand what Paul has done here in Romans 14. He has laid down a new standard for sin. He has laid down a new standard for sin. In the Old Testament, we would have just said, man, sin is breaking God's law. But in the New Testament, we have to say anything that's not from faith is sin. So we can't define it in terms of eating or drinking or, or, or some list of do's and don'ts. It has to be defined by what is in the heart of a person. Now, let me end with this. Do you see why we so desperately, desperately, desperately need a Savior? Because I don't know about you, but I need a Savior. I don't even know my own heart sometimes. Are the things that I'm doing, if what I hope, I hope and pray with everything in me that what I'm doing right now is done out of faith. I hope it is. I pray it is. I believe it is. But let me tell you, I said it. You and I need a Savior. Because our hearts are, they're not, they're, they're, they're not easily discernible. And sin is deceptive. It tells us you're okay. It's, you're, you're a good person. And, and God's not going to hold you accountable for those things. But He is. But he is. I need a savior. I need forgiveness. I need to be reconciled. And that is only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Only through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we always do for your word. Um, I say it often. I, it's, it's amazing to me that something you wrote 2,000 years ago is just as relevant for my life today as it was then. Every time I open it, it's like looking in a mirror. And I pray that that's what's happened here tonight, Lord, that you've kind of opened a mirror and let us see ourselves for who we really are. God, that we'll start looking into our motives. We'll start looking at our conscience. We'll start going deeper and not getting past this list of do's and don'ts to see what's really happening in our heart. Are the things we're doing, are they being done out of a desire to honor you and show our love for you and glorify you? Or are they being done for other selfish reasons? God, shine that light in our heart. Shine the light of the word of God in our heart tonight. And I ask you this to do it, Father. You, through the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to ask if you'll just keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed. If there's anyone here tonight that you've got some things in your life that need to be dealt with. I just, feel like, I just feel like you need to respond to the Word. You've got a chance here to respond to the Word. I'm not going to call you forward or anything like that, but with just a simple raising of your hand, you'll just say, pray for me. I've got some things in my life that are just not right. 
Anybody else? Father, you see the hands that are raised. And God, I pray right now in Jesus' name. Holy Spirit, do your work. Father, I, I just believe already your, your convicting power is here tonight. And I just pray, God, that your Holy Spirit will just come in and do an incredible work in the hearts and the souls and the spirit and the conscience of those that raise their hand. God, em empower them. Empower them through your spirit to overcome. Because we can't do it on our own. Apart from you, we are absolutely nothing. Apart from you, we can do nothing. We can't love you. We can't honor you. We can't glorify you. But with you, all things are possible. Make it real tonight, God. Make it possible tonight for each person that raised their hand, the thing in their life that they're struggling with, the thing in their life that they may be doing that they know is wrong, and they're doing it anyway. God, I pray that you would just wash over them with an acceptance and a joy and a peace. And, Father, that they won't need that thing anymore. They don't need that acceptance from other people. They don't need this, 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 this temporary satisfaction that comes from this desire that they're fulfilling. They don't need any of that stuff, God, because they are full of you. God, only you can do that. And I ask you to do it tonight. And we pray that in the weeks ahead that somebody will stand and give a testimony and glorify your name. And we give you all the honor and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.